the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. This is Cornerstone Connection, the radio ministry of Pastor Gary Hamrick of Cornerstone Chapel in Leesburg, Virginia. Pastor Gary is teaching through the Gospel of John. Real love is calling, listen, truth opens up your eyes. Mercy is waiting for you with every sunrise. If Jesus was so interested in driving out that which was shameful in the temple, in Jerusalem, what is it perhaps in our own temple, in our own lives, that Jesus would want to address and drive out? What are some of the things in our own lives that we've allowed in and the compromises and sin issues that have gone unconfessed with the Lord? That if the Lord were to look at our temple, so to speak, might he have issue with anything going on in our own lives? You're always a work in progress. Something needs to be updated or molded. As a follower of Christ, that work is done by the nudging of the Holy Spirit. Sometimes it's small things, a gentle reminder to change an attitude or show a bit of kindness. But other times, you may need Jesus to come in and do some radical work on your heart. Today, Pastor Gary will encourage you to examine your life and identify with the Holy Spirit's help the areas that need the most work, and then let Jesus work on them. At the close of Pastor Gary's message today, I'll be sharing with you how you can get a copy of today's broadcast of Cornerstone Connection. Subscribe to the podcast or get in touch with us. But for now, let's join Pastor Gary in the book of John chapter 2 with today's edition of Cornerstone Connection. The temple that was standing in Jesus' day was known as the second temple. It was known as the temple that Herod had built. Now, there was the first temple that Solomon built. Then that was destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar when the Jews were taken into captivity, 586 B.C. Then you remember Zerubbabel came back. Nehemiah came back with, with those who had been captive. After 70 years of captivity in Babylon, they come back, they rebuild the temple. That is the second temple. But under the rule of King Herod, who was kind of this liaison between the Jews and the Roman Empire, he was an appointed king, a puppet of Rome, but there to kind of keep peace and oversight of, of the Jews in the province of Israel, which is part of the Roman Empire at this time. Herod wanted to do two things. He wanted to ingratiate himself with the Jews. And secondly, he wanted to leave a legacy. He figured that his name would never die if he would do enormous building projects. And here we are, 2,000 years later, still talking about Herod the Great. Because he did uh, engage in enormous building projects. One of which was this Temple Mount. What he basically did was he disassembled the second temple and rebuilt it. It, in essence, really is a third temple, but Jews today will still only refer to it as the second temple. He basically dismantled it, rebuilt the whole thing. And what Herod did, he was brilliant in many ways. He was very evil in many ways. But he leveled out Mount Moriah to the square footage of what is, what is even still today, the Temple Mount area, the platform. He built 
off of a mountain. So a mountain has generally a peak, right? And he builds this platform using the top bedrock of the peak of the mountain. But as the mountain begins to, you know, decline in topography, he had to make a flat surface. And the summit of Mount Moriah was not large enough to do what he wanted to do. So he builds this enormous platform, the size of six football fields. It is still today the largest man-made platform in the world. And he builds up retaining walls. He uh, levels it out with uh, fill dirt. And then these huge Jerusalem stone block as foundation. And, you know, even today you can see the remnant of Herod's work there. Now in 70 AD, the temple was destroyed by the Romans. But you can still see the Herodian, some of the Herodian stones and the Herodian walls there from the first century. He started this building project around 16 B.C. It would take 80 years to complete. He wouldn't even be alive for the completion of it. It would be completed in 63 A.D., almost 80 years to complete. It was this enormous project, but he starts it in 16 B.C. By the time of this conversation here, it's, it's about 30 A.D., so it's 46 years into the building project. Herod the Great's already dead by now, but the building project itself is still going on. The temple has been completed, but the platform area and the adjoining buildings and all this kind of stuff is still going on. And so the Jews, who are skeptical about Jesus and who he is, say to him, It's taken 46 years, I mean, up to this point. It's taken 46 years to build this temple and everything here on the the temple grounds area. And you, you think that you can rebuild it in three days if it's destroyed? Now look at verse 21. John tells us, but the temple he had spoken of was his body. It was his body. And, you know, think about it. Our bodies as well are referred to as a temple unto the Lord. Twice in Paul's letter to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 3.16, he said, we are God's temple and his spirit dwells in us. And then in 1 Corinthians 6.19, he refers to our body as the temple of the Holy Spirit. So, you know, we shouldn't worship our temples. We should take care of our temples. The temple itself on the temple mount, the literal one, was itself not to be worshiped. It would be the Lord's presence within the temple. It is the Lord's presence within our temple. He is the one to be worshipped. Okay, we should take care of the temple. You know, the temple's going to crack and fade and sag and all that kind of stuff. And eventually the temple's going to return to dust. And then we're going to go to be with the Lord and get a glorified body. But we should take care of the temple. But the temple's not to be worshipped. It is the Lord Jesus who takes residence in us, but it is not the temple itself. So even our bodies are referred to in Scripture as the temple, the temple of the Holy Spirit. By this, he meant the temple of his body. Verse 22, and after he was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what he had said. They had a flashback moment to this. And then they believed the Scripture and the words that Jesus had spoken. So John inserts that there to, to let us know that, you know, at the moment his disciples didn't really connect the dots. But after Jesus rose from the dead, they had a flashback to this scene. Now verse 23 says, Now while he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many people saw the miraculous signs he was doing and believed in his name. But Jesus would not entrust himself to them, for he knew all men. He did not need man's testimony about man, for he knew what was in a man. So some interesting verses there. Basically, 
when it says here that Jesus would not entrust himself to them, it just means that in general, Jesus just, you know, wouldn't become closely familiar with just anybody and everybody. He has a select 12. And within the select 12, he has three, Peter, James, and John, that he's especially close to. He does not entrust himself just to anybody. He has a close-knit circle that he's gathered around him for a particular purpose here, but he doesn't just entrust himself to the masses at large because he knows people. And, and he knows that some people can't be trusted, some people will betray him, uh, some people will deceive him, or try to, you know, not that he could be deceived. And so he, knowing the hearts and the evil intent of people, he doesn't entrust himself too much to too many. And he doesn't need, verse 25, man's testimony, he doesn't need man to validate his ministry. So, you know, they ask, by what authority do you do this? His answer is basically, you know, without them understanding this in full, what he's basically saying is, you know, give me a little time. When you see me rise from the dead, you'll know by what authority I do this, okay, because I have the power over life and death. And by the way, I don't need man to validate my ministry anyway. And so... That's the scene there, first Passover, there in Jerusalem. Listen, before we move into chapter 3, here's a thought. When we see Jesus driving out the money changers and, you know, addressing what's going on wrong in the temple court area, and when we realize that our own bodies are compared to a temple in 1 Corinthians, if Jesus was so interested in driving out that which was shameful in the temple in Jerusalem, what is it perhaps in our own temple, in our own lives, that Jesus would want to address and drive out? What are some of the things in our own lives that we've allowed in and the compromises and sin issues that have gone unconfessed with the Lord? That if the Lord were to look at our temple, so to speak, might he have issue with anything going on in our own lives that we should examine? What is it he might want to drive out of us? Chapter 3 becomes now one of the most famous chapters in all of the Bible. John chapter 3, particularly verse 16. I read this quote from Charles Spurgeon uh, who said about John chapter 3. He said this, quote, If we were asked to read to a dying man who did not know the gospel, we should probably select this chapter as the most suitable one for such an occasion. And what is good for dying men is good for us all. For that is what we are. And how soon we may be actually at the gates of death, none of us can tell. Now he wrote that because this is probably the most classic chapter in the Bible that expresses the whole concept of what it means to be saved or using the terms here that Jesus uses, to be born again. Now that term has been used on many in different ways and many for over many different centuries and years since the time that Jesus first uttered them, it almost became cliche at some point where people talked about, you're born again, I'm born again, you're born again, I'm born again. But what does it really mean? Because it's still a valid term to describe the Christian experience. What does it mean to be born again? So here comes this conversation that Jesus has with one Pharisee whose name is Nicodemus. Chapter 3, look at verse 1. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the miraculous signs you were doing if God were not with him. 
In reply, Jesus declared, I tell you the truth, no one can see the kingdom of God unless he is born again. How can a man be born when he is old? Nicodemus asked. Surely he cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb to be born? Jesus answered, I tell you the truth, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless he is born of water and the Spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the Spirit gives birth to spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. How can this be? Nicodemus asked. You are Israel's teacher, Jesus said. And do you not understand these things? I tell you the truth, we speak of what we know and we testify to what we have seen, but still you people do not accept our testimony. I have spoken to you of earthly things, and you do not believe. How then will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the desert, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. All right, let's just pause there for a moment, back up and understand this conversation. So here comes this one man. His name is Nicodemus. He is a Jew. He is a Pharisee, which means he belongs to a particular Jewish sect. The Pharisees were strict in interpreting the law. Therefore, they were many times legalistic about how they lived. They had a very narrow view of the law and interpreted it very, very carefully to the point where they, as Jesus said, you know, you swallow camels and gag at gnats. In other words, you know, you you stumble over the smallest things. You choke on the smallest things. But you are missing the greater picture of what the law is intended to communicate. So that was, that was a fault in many ways of the Pharisees. Very legalistic. Matthew 23 devoted a whole chapter, Jesus uh, chiding the Pharisees for their legalism. But this guy seems to be here at least curious. He is seeking Jesus. He is a member of the Jewish ruling council. So he is not only a Pharisee, he's part of the Sanhedrin. There were 70 members in the Jewish ruling council. So these are, you know, kind of think of it as like the Supreme Court among the Jews in the day. They would settle disputes. They're going to be the group, remember, that when Jesus gets hauled before them under false pretenses and false charges, they're going to be the group that condemns him to death, but then they can't kill him, so they take him to Pontius Pilate. So this is a group of of religious leaders in Jesus' day that Jesus many times took issue with. This guy seems to be different. Now, he comes to Jesus at night, the Bible says, okay? Nick at night, right? He comes to Jesus at night, and there's speculation. Did he come to Jesus at night because, you know, it was at the end of the day, and and Jesus wasn't busy, and so he just wanted to ask Jesus a few questions? Or is it more likely that he came to Jesus at night because he didn't want to be seen? Probably the latter. Nicodemus is mentioned alongside Joseph of Arimathea, another member of the Sanhedrin, when you get into John chapter 19, because in John 19, Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus, the same guy, go together and they request the body of Jesus after Jesus was crucified. They request from Pontius Pilate the body of Jesus that they might bury him. And Nicodemus brings 75 pounds of spices to help embalm the body of Jesus, which would indicate he was wealthy. So he's wealthy, he's a religious leader, 
He's a part of the Jewish ruling council. He's intelligent and educated. And here he comes at night, probably because he doesn't want to be seen. When we get to John chapter 9, there is a very sad story about a man that Jesus heals. But because he gives glory to Jesus, he's going to get excommunicated from the synagogue, from the fellowship of the Jews. If the Jews in this day put their faith and trust in Jesus, they ran the risk of being disfellowshipped and excommunicated from the rest of the Jewish population. So Nicodemus is probably aware of this. My my reputation could be ruined because I'm associating with Jesus. I'm going to go at night. It's interesting. In John 19, when it talks about Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus, it says Joseph of Arimathea was a disciple of Christ, but quietly, discreetly, he was a hidden disciple, and it says, for he feared the Jews. Now, it never comes right out and says Nicodemus was a disciple. So you can speculate. I personally think he ended up becoming one. That's just my guess. Maybe we'll see him in heaven, maybe we won't. I think he becomes a follower of Jesus, but he's having, he comes to Jesus at night, he has this conversation with Jesus. Now, first thing that he says to Jesus is, we know there's something different about you. You know, everybody can tell here that you're, that you're unusual. We know, he says again in verse 2, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God. For no one could perform the miraculous signs you were doing if God were not with him. So we know God is with you. Now, Jesus is going to try to help him understand God's not only with me, I am God, but, but that's coming. First, at least Nicodemus realizes you're doing something very unique and different from anybody else. I see it. It's obvious the miracles speak for themselves. Now, what does Jesus do in response? He launches right into this idea of being born again. And he doesn't take time for small tarp. Thank you very much. I appreciate that. I'm glad you've noticed the miracles. That's wonderful. Yes. Tell me your last name. I didn't get that. I only got Nick. What is your last name? He doesn't, you know, no small talk. He goes right into this. Because, you know, this is an urgent matter here. And he says to him, I tell you the truth, no one can see, circle that word, can see the kingdom of God unless he is born again. Underline kingdom of God, underline born again. First of all, the word see is the Greek word eido, and it can translate to know or to experience. This is not just something visual, Jesus is saying. He's talking about something potentially experiential. You can know experience the kingdom of God. Now, the kingdom of God is is by itself another term that needs definition. In Luke 17, Jesus said the kingdom of God does not come with your careful expectations. Neither will people say here it is or there it is, for the kingdom of God is within you. So there's some times in the Bible where it talks about the kingdom of God as the rule of God in you and him reigning in your life as king in the kingdom. But then there are other times that sometimes that phrase kingdom of God is interchangeable with the idea of the kingdom of heaven. I think it's the latter that he's talking about here. He's talking about you're you're never going to experience heaven. You're never going to experience life eternal, which, by the way, is a phrase that John loves. He he talks here about eternal life. Uh, We'll get to that in a moment, more than any of the other gospels combined. Unless, Jesus says, you're born again. When he throws out that phrase, born again... Nicodemus responds like probably any of us would. If you had somebody say to you, hey, you need to be born again, and you have, you've never been to church, you have no idea about the Bible, you have no idea about spiritual truth or concepts about, about this whole idea, you'd ask the same thing that Nicodemus asks. And hear what he says. How can a man 
be born when he is old? Nicodemus asked. Surely he cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb to be born. Now, you're going to notice the word born is used here often. You know, Jesus says you have to be born again. Nicodemus says, how can I go back in my mother's womb and be born again? Now, they're talking about birth, each of them, but they're talking about two kinds of birth, and they're very different, but they're using the same word. Nicodemus doesn't get this. Jesus is talking here about spiritual birth. Nicodemus is thinking physical birth. Jesus is talking supernatural birth. Nicodemus is thinking natural birth. So they're having conversations for a little bit where, you know, Jesus, of course, knows what he's saying, but Nicodemus doesn't get it, and yet we're talking about being born. I don't understand. We're using the same words. I don't know. It reminds me of a story about several years ago corresponding with the 40th anniversary of when Neil Armstrong walked on the moon, which was 1969. And some friends of ours were having a discussion, and the lady friend was saying about how she remembered the, uh, the moonwalk when Neil Armstrong walked on the moon, 1969, and reminiscing about you know, how she remembers that, because she was old enough to remember. About that time, her 20-something-year-old daughter walks into the room and heard the tail end of the conversation about, I remember the moonwalk. <laughs> and her 20-something-year-old daughter said, yeah, I remember the moonwalk too. And her mom said, how can you remember the moonwalk? You weren't around 40 years ago, sweetheart. She says, 40 years ago? It wasn't 40 years ago. Yes, it was 40 years ago. It was 1969. Her daughter said, it wasn't 1969. It was like in the 80s. What are they talking about? They're talking both about the moonwalk, but one is thinking Neil Armstrong, and the other one is thinking Michael Jackson. The moonwalk. So it's the same terms, but they're on two different planes. That's what's going on here. Jesus like, you have to be born again. Born again? How can you be born again? Go back in your mother's womb. No, we're talking the same words, but we're talking two different things here. And so as he asks the question then, Jesus answers, verse 5. I tell you the truth. No one can enter the kingdom of God unless he is born of water and the Spirit. Born of water and the Spirit. Now, you read different commentaries here, and there's different ideas about what he means here. Uh, I will tell you that the Mormon church uh, believes that baptism is, water baptism is required for salvation based on this verse. You, you, have, to, you have to be born of water and of the Spirit. You have to be, that's water baptism, that's what Mormons will teach. There's also some groups within even Protestantism that will tell you you have to be baptized in order to go to heaven, which isn't true. Uh, water baptized to go to heaven, that isn't true. Um, but is he talking about water baptism here? You must be born of water and the Spirit. You must be water baptized and then be born of the Spirit in order to see, experience heaven and the kingdom of God. Well, no, he's not talking about water baptism. How do we know? Because he clarifies it in the next verse. Look at verse 6. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the spirit gives birth to spirit. In other words, there are two kinds of births. One is to be born of water. That's when flesh gives birth to flesh. That's when the amniotic fluid, the sac breaks, amniotic fluid spills out, a baby is born physically. That's one type of birth. That's flesh giving birth to flesh. That's being born of water. But then there's a spiritual birth, where flesh gives birth to flesh, but then secondly, spirit gives birth to spirit. 
And he says in verse 7, You should not be surprised at my saying, You must be born again. Now, underline that for you guys who like to take notes, because there are four imperatives that are given here in chapter 3. This is the first one. You must. You must be born again. We're so glad you joined us for this edition of Cornerstone Connection with Pastor Gary Hamrick. Pastor Gary's been going through the book of John. If you missed any part of this message, you can hear it again on our website, cornerstoneconnection.cc. You might want to download our mobile app so you have these teachings with you on the go. That way you'll never miss a message from Pastor Gary's studies, and you'll always have encouragement from God's Word at your fingertips. Find a link to download the app for your iPhone or Android device at our website, cornerstoneconnection.cc. While you're there, feel free to take some time to learn about the church this radio ministry originates from, Cornerstone Chapel. We'd love to meet you. Please join us for worship and Bible study. You'll find all you need to know about service times and other info on our website. Again, that's cornerstoneconnection.cc. We hope and pray you've been blessed by today's teaching in the book of John. Please know that we're praying for you too. Although we're out of time for today, keep reading on your own in the book of John until Pastor Gary continues teaching through this extraordinary account of Jesus' life on Cornerstone Connection. No place to go But still you know